Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the New to Brains podcast. Unlike normally, Emily won't be your host today. My name is William Oda, and I am a PhD student at UC Riverside in the Ecology, Evolution, and Organismal Biology Department. I study how anthropogenic inputs or human disturbances are affecting urban rivers and the species and communities of species that live there. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Emily and asking her some questions about her research and then what her plans are for the future. I'm really excited to be able to sort of flip the script on her, and I'm excited to then introduce her to all of you. So welcome to your own podcast today, Emily. How are you doing? (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. So is it weird being the interviewee rather than the interviewer today? It is. And unfortunately, we've had some technical difficulties. So this isn't the first time I've said this to you, but I am like, I'm more nervous to be interviewed than actually interviewing people because I don't know, I'm just used to being on the other side of things. Um, So I'm very excited to see what we get up to today. Yeah, I'm super excited now that this is our second chance due to a corrupted audio file. We're really (laughs) going to nail all of our questions and answers. Yes, definitely. Definitely. We've had time to practice. So, well, for those of you who don't know, Emily is a master's student at Moss Landing Marine Labs, and she's been working on some really cool questions up there related to marine science. So do you want to quickly describe sort of what your lab is and what you've been working on and what Moss Landing is? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Moss Landing in general is a consortium of CSU campuses, so Cal. California State University. Um, It's the master's program in marine science. So we all come together in a lab, which is about halfway in between Monterey and Santa Cruz. And the cool thing about where it's situated is it's right at the head of the submarine canyon in Monterey Bay, which is a huge canyon about the size of the Grand Canyon, um, but fully submerged in the water. So you've probably never seen it before, but it's an awesome habitat for whales and a lot of other, you know, deep ocean creatures. So it's very common that I look out my lab window and see a whale just breaching, you know, 50 feet offshore because it gets so deep so fast, which is really cool. Um, I'm specifically in the invertebrate zoology and molecular biology lab under Dr. John Geller, and I studied for my thesis environmental DNA. So what is environmental DNA then? So environmental DNA is any DNA that's put off by organisms into their surroundings, whether that be air water, soil, or ice. Um, So as we are sitting here right now respiring and probably sweating a little bit too, um, we are producing eDNA into the air around us. Environmental DNA, uh, eDNA is short for environmental DNA. But fish do it in the water as they pee and as they um, just exist in the water. And so specifically, I study the environmental DNA or eDNA that comes from marine mollusks that can be in the form of mucus or poop or even just from respiring the DNA that comes off of them in the ocean. That's really cool. So I am obviously more familiar with traditional genetic techniques where you collect like a tissue sample or fur or something else directly from an organism. Is eDNA something new or is it something that's been around for a long time? It's it's more new than um, like needing to collect a tissue sample. That's kind of the cool thing about using environmental DNA is it's very non-invasive. So I don't even have to touch the animal to get its genetic information. Um, Previously, yeah, we would have to take a tissue clipping 
or even sacrifice the animal if it was really small um, to get the genetic information we needed. So that's pretty cool. It's up and coming. Um, but people have been kind of interested in it since basically since we've been able to sequence DNA, people have been kind of looking into this and seeing if it's a possibility, but it's definitely gaining popularity now um, because like I said, you don't have to touch the animal, which also means you don't necessarily have to see the animal to collect the genetic information. If there's enough water around it or um, whatever, you can just collect the genetic information without even interacting with the animal. That's really amazing. So it might work really well for microscopic organisms, which, which we can't really collect in the first place then. Yes, or species that are hard to find or hard to see based on you know, the environment they live in. Wow, that's so cool. So what are the current uses for eDNA and how are people applying this really cool technology to their work? There's a few different applications that I find really interesting right now. Um, the first is scientists are finding that in ice and in permafrost, there is eDNA stored um, from like woolly mammoths and ancient horses. So scientists are able to capture that DNA. Um, but also, you know, they're using it in fisheries surveys, comparing how much DNA is in the deep ocean compared to the fish that they're bringing up. Um, but probably my favorite example of environmental DNA is a citizen science project that they did in the United Kingdom, um, where they basically trained volunteers for about 30 minutes and then sent them out to collect water samples. Um, and their overall goal was to track the habitat of a rare newt that lives in the UK. But it's hard to survey because it lives in really like muddy, icky ponds that are spread all over the place. So visually, you know, if you wanted to track them visually, you would have to look for the individuals or the eggs. You'd have to travel all over the place and spend a lot of time looking. But what they found is that when volunteers collected water from these ponds, it was actually more successful at finding the habitat of the newts than visual surveys alone. Um, so suggesting that environmental DNA might be a great way to look for, you know, endangered things or things that are difficult to survey um, just based based on looking for them with our eyes on, on their own. Well, as you know, I love a good newt project from my time at Pepperdine, and I can personally <laughs> attest to how hard it is to find those little cute amphibians out in the wild, but I guess it's not like out of the question then for a scientist to come up to your house and ask for a bag of dirt or access to your pond in the backyard at some point in the future. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, like there might be certain you know legal implications with that like people might need a warrant or something to collect genetic information from your property I don't know um, but super cool and just a great way to just a great tool for you know ecological purposes I think it's really fascinating yeah it's like such a cool thing and you did your whole master's thesis on this so now that we've talked a little little bit about what eDNA is do you want to describe what your master's thesis was on Yes, so I quantified the rates that uh, three marine mollusks put off environmental DNA into the environment around them, and also um, the rate at which it breaks down so that we could see, you know, what's the rate it's being put off, but also how long will it last? How long will it stay in the environment? Um, specifically, I did this for the red abalone, the rough limpet, and um, the California blue mussel. Limpets and abalone are threatened in California due to overharvesting. Um, mussels are everywhere, but I thought they would be a really interesting kind of comparison um, to limpets and mussels, or sorry, to limpets and abalone, because abalone and limpets are similar shaped, 
Um, they have a shell on top and a foot on the bottom, but mussels are bivalves, like clams, they have two shells. Um, so they can be fully closed all the time if they want to be. And I thought that might have some sort of interesting uh, implications in the actual amount of eDNA that they put off. So I did um, different studies, making the animals become active, um, just letting them exist in a container for 24 hours to see how much eDNA they put off. And overall, I found um, that abalone put off more eDNA, uh, larger abalone put off more eDNA than smaller abalone, and active abalone put off more eDNA than inactive abalone or abalone just acting normally but I did not find these differences for limpets and mussels. So maybe suggesting that there's some sort of um, metabolic differences, even though these are pretty closely related um, marine mollusks, there's still a huge difference in the amount of eDNA they put off. Um, and I'm still working through the degradation stuff, but it seems like most of the eDNA degradates and the <laughs> degradates degrades in the first 24 hours. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting and really cool. And I think it could be a great way for us to track abalone, especially in the wild, because they are a population we're really concerned about. Um, and humans have done a lot of really bad things to them in the past. So hopefully with environmental DNA, we can figure out where they're living and do a better job at protecting them in the future. Wow, that's super cool. So what causes eDNA to degrade once it's been shed off of an organism? Good question. So there are multiple hypotheses and, and papers will point at different things, but it seems like some sort of combination between pH, uh, which is like how acidic or how sour you can think of the water is, um, heat, bacteria, and ultraviolet, so sunlight. Um, some combination of these things is breaking down the environmental DNA. My study suggests that just over time it breaks down, but also that bacteria might have some sort of influence. Some studies, you know, they look at all of those factors and it seems like every study finds a different combination of those factors is acting on the eDNA to break it down. Um, so, you know, physical things, but I'm not sure we can 100% pinpoint which ones yet. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that affect anything going on in an ecological system, which is why we have so much noise in all of our work. Exactly. Huge error bars. <laughs> so it sounds then like you did your um, thesis primarily in a lab setting then, and you didn't really try and collect a ton of uh, wild water samples? Yes, that's correct. And I, it's, it's challenging because when you're doing a master's thesis, like there's so much that you want to accomplish and you want to do all these things and have great research. And, but I also wanted to limit myself because I knew that, I wanted to go on to get a PhD or at least go on to do something else like a master's degree wasn't the end of my career for sure. Um, so I didn't want to spend forever there. And so I made sure that I was very clear with my advisor, like, Hey, this master's degree, it's supposed to take, you know, maybe two years, took three, but that's fine. Um, that's still short for my school. Um, and I really limited the research that I wanted to get done, but in the future, I would love to test my techniques in the wild because that adds so many different um, just factors that you're not expecting and everything starts to go wrong when you get outside. And so I'd love to tackle some of those problems one day. Yeah, I definitely think it was smart to limit your science as any graduate student sort of finds out making your projects too ambitious is way worse than making them a little too small to start with. Yes, definitely. And then this is just a ton of work. So did you finish your master's thesis? Yes. So, well, 
I defended my master's thesis about a week and a half ago. I'm still finishing the paper part, um, but I have a deadline of tomorrow to send it to my committee uh, for the final like edits and approval. Um, and then I have to turn it in by May 8th. So I'm very close to being fully done and actually having the master's degree, um, but not quite there yet. Well, I think I am safe in offering some preemptive congratulations on you for defending your thesis and now getting that final manuscript manuscript into your committee. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Well, I just have a couple more questions then, I guess, about what your thesis is on. Um, you mentioned that one of these species was a bivalve and the other was, uh, or the other two are footed um, species. So life history then has a big impact on eDNA shedding into the environment. It seems like it, yeah. Like I mentioned, the bivalve, so the muscle um, can stay closed if it wants to. Of course, inside it has gills and it has, you know, things to feed. Um, and there's a lot of surface area in there. So you would think when they're open that a lot of water would be coming in contact with their body and that they would put off a lot of environmental DNA. Found that that wasn't the case. But yeah, the... Um, the limpet and the abalone are what we call gastropods. So that means they have a shell on top um, and a foot on the bottom. And I imagined that because they look fairly similar that they might put off eDNA at similar rates based on their weight. Um, but I found overall that abalone were just a lot more active than limpets. Limpets, if they flipped over in the tank, would just die because they couldn't flip themselves over. Whereas abalone are like actually pretty fast compared to limpets, very active. If I put in food, the abalone would move around a bunch and put up their heads and they could right themselves very easily. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to the activity of the animal, maybe the length of their digestive tract and how much they poop. Um, a lot more study could be done there. But yeah, it seems like even though, you know, these animals are kind of similar looking, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything going on inside of their body is similar as well. Yeah, you just described a whole nother, a whole nother master's project for the next student to join your lab, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. I know that advisors love having a list of projects lined up for whenever the next student walks in that door. <laughs> Definitely. And you had said that you're not done with your educational journey. Do you know what you're doing next? Yes, so I'm gonna be starting a PhD um, through the University of Maine, but actually doing my research at the University of New England. It's kind of a complicated situation, but I'm super excited to get started there in the fall. That's so amazing. I'm so excited to see all the stuff you do. Uh, do you know what your research is going to be on? Yes. So I'm staying in the realm of environmental DNA because I love it. Um, and it's actually kind of funny. I wasn't, I, I didn't apply for a PhD um, at first, normally that's something you kind of start to prepare in the fall. And, uh, but I was kind of thinking I would take some time off. But then I went to a conference and after like a five minute conversation with somebody, um, they asked if I wanted to get a PhD in their lab. <laughs> and I was like, sure. So in January, um, I found out I had two weeks to get my application for a PhD program in, um, got funding and yeah, so I'm going to Maine to study um, environmental DNA, specifically um, looking at invasive species, which is kind of the opposite of what I've been studying, right? Because I've been studying endangered or threatened mollusks. Now I'm going to be looking at those things that are threatening natural ecosystems. Um, but there are some similarities, as I'm sure you can attest to, Will, being somebody who works with invasive species. When you're 
trying to get rid of invasive species, it's much easier to do that when they're in very low levels. Once they get established, it's a whole nother ball game trying to get them to leave. Um, and so in that way, the research that I'm doing is fairly similar because it, in my current research, I look for environmental DNA um, of animals that aren't very common. And in my PhD research, I'm going to be looking for animals that we don't want to be very common. So I want to catch them early. So I'll still be working with very small amounts of DNA, um, but hopefully instead of you know, trying to be on a more conservation side of things, I'll be on more of a protection side of things and trying to get ahead of the problem before the invasive species really have a chance to um, put down their, their home in, our, in the main coastline. Yeah, that sounds like the type of tool I would love to have my hands on right now because e-fishing in the heat in Riverside in the summer is not one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had. And it is definitely yeah. not easy. So it sounds like you're going to develop some things that will really improve the life of biologists like myself who do try and monitor and prevent the invasions of all these new common things that are being facilitated by humans around the planet. Yes, environmental DNA is the way to go. <laughs> Yeah. So um, do you hope to incorporate any citizen science or public outreach with this because you're looking at eDNA and it can be collected by sort of non-academic researchers? Yes, absolutely. And I think I am under the impression that my project is going to have at least some component of that because we'll be monitoring for these species up and down the main coastline, which is pretty big. There's a lot of islands. Um, and so I think, yeah, we'll definitely need help. Um, especially because we know that environmental DNA is something anybody can collect. Like anybody can go out and just get a container of water. Um, so I definitely hope to do that. And I know that my advisor is also pretty active just in the community in general, taking molecular biology into middle schools and high schools um, to interact with kids too and get them excited about environmental DNA. So yes, I am super excited to continue working with the public. Well, it sounds like you have a really awesome PhD dissertation set up for you once you get out there to the East Coast. Yes. So I guess the important questions are, as you sort of finish this chapter here at Moss Landing, is really, how did Nudibrain start? <laughs> so it started because I wanted to get into scientific communication in some aspect. Originally, I came up with the idea um, to do like audiobooks, but instead of audiobooks, be scientific journals. Um, because I just feel like I drive so much and it would be so convenient to listen to somebody narrate a journal um, while I was driving. So I didn't have to read as much. But then I realized that I was going to have a lot of like copyright things to deal with with that. And also, I think a lot of scientific literature um, is best understood if you can see the graphs. So I was still interested in doing something communication-wise, but the papers kind of weren't working out. Um, but then I thought, oh, well, what if I actually interviewed scientists about what they're doing so that people could learn about their research without having like the dry, you know, because scientific papers can be really challenging to read and to understand. Um, and instead, why don't we bring on the actual scientists and hear their voices and hear the excitement that they have surrounding their research. I think that will tell people so much more about what they do. So yeah, that's kind of where that idea started. 
Yeah, I think that's really amazing. You can really tell the difference in the way that scientists write versus how we present her work in other places. If you sort of go to a conference or a seminar, you hear the scientists talk about what really excites them about their projects and the interesting things that you might be able to do and the applications of their work. But in a paper, what you're really doing is sort of presenting the findings, the results, and then sort of defending it from possible criticisms to make sure that everyone sees that you were, you know, robust and scientific enough in your approaches. Yes, exactly. So this is sort of all part of why SciComm is so important is it's making our research accessible to other people in the community who might not be scientists. So do you think that like social media, podcasts, other things like that are sort of important ways that we make science more accessible? Absolutely, because so many papers these days are behind a paywall where you have to pay like $40 to see an article. Not only is that stopping people from reading the literature, but also just the language in there isn't really understandable. I struggle to understand it, and I've been a scientist for like eight years now. Um, and so I think we as scientists could do a better job at communicating our science, yes, but it's also about, you know, breaking free from traditional methods of communicating science through journals and things like that. Um, because yeah, people can't pay for that. And I think that's why I'm so excited about podcasts and about social media is because there are so many people out there who are so intelligent and so excited to be scientists, but they don't have the resources that they need to learn about science. Um, and so I think, you know, being able to share research or even just share cool animals on Instagram is such an amazing way to reach those populations who, again, like their family doesn't have money for them to travel or, or to get extra books or anything like that, but they want to learn and they're the future of our science. You know, we have such big problems on our planet that require huge solutions and it's not something that one person can solve overnight. And so I think by having science on, that's a tongue twister, science on social media, um, we can really reach more people and hopefully get more helpers in this fight that we have against, you know, climate change and all the crazy problems happening on our planet right now. So yes, I am a big proponent of SciComm for free. <laughs> yeah, I definitely get that working in sort of an urban ecology area. It's really fun to sort of show people what exists in their backyards and how that still is important scientific work. And you don't have to go to the deep Amazon rainforest or the Great Barrier Reef in Australia to do ecology, biology, science in general. And you can find cool projects and interesting questions that need to be answered even in your own backyard. Yes, absolutely. So I think the biggest question and the one that I've been really excited to ask this entire time is, where did the name Nudibrains come from? <laughs> it just came honestly from spitballing with my friends at work. Um, I have been talking to them about the idea of the podcast for quite some time. And I was like, you know, I want it to be something that represents me and my interests, but also just like the scientific community and what we'll be talking about. Um, and my friends know that I love Nudibranchs or sea slugs. Um, and so one of my friends who's not even a scientist, she, um, just worked at my work. She worked in the gift store. Um, she was like, well, what if you call it new to brains, like new to brains, but then like smart people and talking about science. I was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. So that's how the name came about. And then my other coworker created my logo. So it all came out of, you know, just conversations at work around the, the refrigerator. 
Well, as someone who follows you on Instagram, I definitely know that you spend a lot of time at Tide Pool. So basing your podcast name off of New to Bronx definitely seems to fit you. Yes, exactly. That's that's the goal. And every time I go out, I try to find New to Bronx and it's just my favorite thing. So it worked out perfectly. Well, if somebody wants to check out your Instagram, do you know what your handle is on there? Yes, it's at Emily the Marine Biologist. And I also have a Twitter, but I don't know what that account is, but it's, you should be able to find it through my Instagram, through my website in the bio link. Well, I would definitely encourage you all to go check out Emily. She's been an awesome scientific mentor for me when I was an undergraduate, and now she's just really leading the way when it comes to psychom and stuff for so many different people. Thanks so much, Will. Yeah, it's so funny to see like everyone coming full circle from our time at Pepperdine. Um, I was one of Will's uh, teaching assistants for botany and another one of the students that I was a teaching assistant for in cellular biology is now in my master's program as well. So it's funny to see everyone kind of spread out and, and do their things and become awesome scientists. Yeah, it's been really fun to sort of see how our little tiny college has produced so many people who've gone on to graduate school and now are trying to sort of give back to the community in different ways and are working on all these important and fun research questions. Definitely. Well, I think that just gets back to our university motto of freely received, freely give. So it's just, you know, we have so many wonderful things that happen in our lives and what else should we do but give back to the community? Well, thank you so much for agreeing to be an interviewee today. I had so much fun flipping the roles on you, and I'm excited to see everything you do in the future. Thanks, Will. And if people are interested in following you on Instagram, uh, what's your handle? It's at will underscore in underscore the underscore wild. I, unfortunately, was not able to get the name I wanted without adding in all those weird symbols. Shoot. I know. I was shocked when Emily, the marine biologist, didn't exist yet. I was like, yes, this is perfect. So <laughs> it's still a good name for you. Yeah, I'm really excited that I have it. And hopefully people like all the animals and other science you think you care on there. Yes, I love your terrariums that you make and everything. So super excited to follow along. If you don't follow Will already, definitely do that. And thanks so much for interviewing me today, Will. Yeah, I can't wait for season two of Nudibrains to come out sometime in the future. It's coming. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for listening today, and I hope you had a good time. Bye.